Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, the new twists in the William Tyrrell case as police search into the evening. Wild pandemic power protests at Victoria Parliament, while similar laws are likely to be abandoned in New South Wales. How the Reserve Bank is easing tensions over a potential interest rate rise. And we check in with Adelaide's zoo's giant pandas as breeding season comes to an end. But first, tonight, police are right now examining new theories in the search for William Tyrrell's remains. Robert Avadi is in Kendall, where investigators and volunteers have spent a second day in a targeted search for William's remains. Hey, Rob, good evening to you. What's the latest happening there right now? Michael, well, there are two sites. The first one that opened up yesterday, this one is 48 Benaroon Drive, where William went missing. And you can see behind me the activity continues into the night. Now, you can see some police there, but uh, a short time ago, they pulled out some ultraviolet light and they're doing what's known as luminol testing. Now, that luminol testing detects haemoglobin in blood. So, uh, ultimately, uh, it can be revealed, even the tiniest little specks can be revealed, and even years later. It sounds ridiculous, I guess, after all the weather and seven years that have passed that uh, police could detect it. It is a tried and true method. It has been around for decades, and police certainly hope it might yield something here. They continued their search also at Cobb and Co Road, roughly a kilometre from here. Uh, excavators have been brought in and the scrub is being cleared for what will be an exhaustive search over the next two to three weeks. And Rob, some new theories emerging today about what happened to William. Yes, and, and I have to stress they are only theories, but uh, police are confident of the direction they're heading in. Behind me, uh, where they are doing the luminol testing is a balcony uh, just perched uh, above, roughly four or five metres high. They're working on the possible theory, at least to either rule it in or rule it out, that William Tyrrell may well have fallen from that balcony to his death. So for that reason today, they have uh, uh, been sifting through dirt, looking for any forensic evidence, anything like a, a tooth, for example, or any sort of piece of clothing or hair, anything that uh, might lead them to a, a forensic explanation that mm. William Tyrrell might have fallen from the balcony in that exact spot where they are doing the testing right now. All right. It's very interesting, Rob, and a lot of people paying attention to it. Robert Avadia there in Kendall, New South Wales. Thank you. A watered-down version of new pandemic powers in Victoria is right now being debated in state parliament outside the building. Protesters are occupying the steps of Spring Street, rallying against the laws. We're still briefing right outside state parliament for us tonight. It's a little noisy there, but we'll get some questions underway. Still, good evening to you. How is the crowd behaving? Good evening, Michael. Well, we are copying some abuse as the media, but apart from that, it does seem pretty peaceful here. Apart from being loud, there are a lot of protesters here tonight. They have been here all day, but they have drawn condemnation from both sides of politics for a stunt that happened earlier today. There was a set of gallows brought here along with an effigy of Daniel Andrews. Protesters are making it very loud and clear how they feel about the Premier and also this pandemic bill. And we expect that they will be here for much longer into the night until their demands are met. So Estelle, 
On these laws, the Premier's had to make several concessions. He has, and that is due to some 11th hour consultations with crossbenchers. He has come to a couple of amendments. Some of them include halving fines for people who don't obey the pandemic rules and also having reasonable grounds for him to declare a pandemic. We also know that they'll now have to give evidence as to why they're declaring a pandemic in seven days instead of 14. The debate went on for long into the night, but it was adjourned about 10 minutes ago. And, Michael, we're expecting a final vote to come in the coming days. Michael. All right. Estelle, we'll let you go out of there. To the people around you are not being well behaved at all, but thank you for that. A proposed extension of emergency COVID-19 powers in New South Wales is on the back burner tonight. The Premier telling his own health minister to sit tight and wait for a decision on his plan. Let's go to our reporter Tom Saker outside State Parliament in Sydney, where it's a little quieter than what it is in Melbourne tonight. Uh, Tim, the bill is delayed. Uh, Tom, rather, I'm sorry. The bill's delayed, but is it dead and buried? Well, not entirely, Michael, uh, but it will look drastically different to the one that was actually approved by Cabinet yesterday. It all took a dramatic turn today in what's been reported as a bitter dispute amongst uh, coalition MPs, especially backbencher MPs, who are fiercely opposed to the health minister's uh, bill, which was seeking to extend the current emergency public health order powers until as late as October 2023. Those backbench MPs, many of whom... Uh, represent the uh, communities affected heavily by those uh, lockdowns earlier this year said that their communities would ultimately reject the bill on the grounds that it would be a, an overreach of government power, perhaps an abuse of government power. But this basically uh, essentially forced the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, into a corner. He's now uh, going to review the bill line by yeah. line and retain what he sees as necessary and ditch what he uh, deems as unnecessary, retain what he believes is sensible. Currently, these uh, laws um, it, uh, will expire in March next year, um, but the, the government won't decide what this bill looks like until uh, next year after the summer break when Parliament comes back. Uh, these laws have allowed uh, the health authorities and police to enforce things like curfew, isolation orders, uh, mask mandates and obviously uh, allowed police to find people who haven't yeah. followed those rules. It's heavily been heavily backed by the health minister, uh, Brad Hazard and Kerry Chant, who worst case scenario see a third wave of COVID lockdowns mm. and also observed overseas um, a number of uh, countries going back into lockdowns lockdowns despite their high vaccination rates but we can expect that this bill will be heavily watered down uh, when it does come back to parliament next year michael all right tom saker there outside state parliament in sydney thank you very much for that let's check in now on the race to vaccinate 83.5 percent of us are fully vaccinated against COVID in 10 days we should reach the 90 percent target so let's have a look at the state and territory breakdown queensland is just above 71 percent full coverage more than 91% of New South Wales is double-dosed. It's an impressive 95% in the ACT. The rate's just shy of 88% in Victoria. Almost 83% of all Tasmanians have received both doses. It's sitting at 74.7% in South Australia. Up to the Northern Territory, it's exactly 71%, followed by WA, which is behind by about 0.5%. Tomorrow morning, floodwaters are set to swell to their peak in the New South Wales Central West. The deadline for around 1,800 locals in low-lying parts of Forbes to evacuate, passing in the last couple of hours. Let's go straight to our reporter, Tom Hartley. He's on the ground there in Forbes. Tom, good evening to you. So what's the warning to residents as we go to air? 
Hey, Michael, basically they're being told that even if they're not planning to leave their homes, that they should be ready to do so anyway, because the way this water is moving at the moment, it is really unpredictable. I'll give you a little bit of a look around where we are right now. This is the Apex Caravan Park, which is right on the banks of the Lachlan River. It's one of the lowest-lying areas of this town. It was evacuated a couple of days ago, but... Uh, now you can see probably about a, a third of the caravan park is underwater as the Lachlan River keeps rising. It got to about 10.2 uh, metres not too long ago. The peak is still predict predicted to be around 10.6. Um, and judging by uh, the, the latest SES stats, uh, we're expecting that not many people are actually going to evacuate to leave their homes. They door knocked more than 600 residents, but only 50, uh, so 600 homes and only about 50 uh, homes have indicated that they're actually planning uh, to evacuate, to go to higher grounds, to go to see, stay with friends and family or pop through that evacuation centre in town, Michael. So, yeah, we're still seeing how this night's going to pan out over the next few hours. Yeah, uh, Tom, look, they've had a bit of time to think about it and a lot of warnings, which is good. I guess they're banking on there being not too much damage. They're talking about that peak in the morning. How bad is that going to be? I mean, there's, there's still no real indication of what's that going to be like. I mean, a lot of locals here are comparing this to the last flood in 2016 when there wasn't any uh, water through the town. That's because it's the same uh, peak level of 10.65 metres. But the difference is, is that in 20, 2012, the, the peak was a bit lower and they did have water through town. But it is moving differently, as a lot of locals will tell you. Usually by this point in time, the lake in the middle of town, Lake Forbes, uh, would have connected with the river and it would already be up. And so you'd see some flooding almost happening uh, internally potentially cutting off some other parts yeah. of town but that's just not happening at the moment and they're saying it's probably because uh, the water courses change things are different upstream at the moment we've got uh, about 80,000 uh, megalitres 85,000 megalitres of water that had been released from Wangala Dam a few days ago that's what this is right now yeah. so uh, as that moves through and that sort of drops off we're going to start seeing that peak come up as well and drop off as it has upstream but I mean, again, we really don't know how bad it's going to be until uh, we get sunlight tomorrow morning and potentially that peak yeah. arriving sometime in the, in the middle of the day. Good on you, Tom. Tom Hartley there in Forbes. Thank you. We've been told rock-bottom interest rates are here to stay and workers are in line for a pay rise. Those are the biggest takeouts from new comments by the Reserve Bank Governor. Let's bring in our political reporter, Taylor Aitken in Canberra. Taylor, good evening to you. We'll start with the interest rates. When does Philip Lowe predict they might go up? Michael, the Reserve Bank Governor is confident an increase to the cash rate won't happen until 2024. But a rise in inflation, similar to what we've seen in the US and in Europe, could force the bank to lift those official interest rates earlier than planned. Dr Philip Lowe conceding there is great uncertainty around the RBA's forecasts at the moment, including around unemployment, inflation and wages growth as Australia recovers from the pandemic. But that hasn't stopped some of Australia's biggest banks from acting sooner. Westpac today increasing its fixed rate home loan by 25 basis points with the list of those lenders offering fixed rates of under 2% shrinking very quickly. And Tyler, the RBA governor believes wages are going to rise. The question is by how much? 
Yes, one of the reasons that those interest rates will remain low is due to slow wage growth. The RBA predicts wages will grow 2.5% next year and 3% in 2023, while unemployment rate remains low at around 4%. The central bank says wages need to grow at a rate of around 3% to sustain inflation at the RBA's target band of between 2 and 3%, a target the RBA doesn't expect to reach until the end of 2023. Michael. All right, Taylor Aiken there in Canberra. Thank you. The spiralling COVID situation in the top end is hitting very close to home tonight. For Mullandiri McCarthy, the federal Labor senator says the nine new cases in Catherine are all members of her family. They're all Indigenous and range in ages from 71 years old to five-year-old twins. One woman was taken to Royal Darwin Hospital. The lockdown in Catherine is going to stay until Monday with a mask mandate imposed for the rest of the Territory. Senator McCarthy is urging all Territorians to get vaccinated. New details tonight on the origins of the nation's deadliest aged care COVID outbreak. The index case, a worker at St Basil's in Melbourne, told an inquest she worked the same day she and relatives took tests. The woman whose identity is protected by the court said her husband and brother-in-law were showing symptoms but was told to continue working because she wasn't. 45 residents died of the virus. And a family of four from Perth stranded in the Simpson Desert is beginning the long journey back home tonight. The Zavros's van became bogged in mud after heavy rain closed roads last week. In the last few hours, they were airlifted out by South Australia Police, taking them to Cooper Pedy, the family all safe and well, but their camper truck has been left behind, stuck in the mud. Home quarantine in Queensland is about to face its biggest test yet when extra hotspot flights start arriving tomorrow. Let's go to our reporter Alex Lewis. He's across the details in Brisbane tonight. Alex, good evening to you. Uh, how many people do we know are coming back home? Good evening, Michael. 220 Queenslanders are due to return tomorrow and go into home quarantine. Uh, there are five flights scheduled into Brisbane from hotspots tomorrow. Uh, much more than today. We only had two plane loads touched down, so hardly a flood of arrivals. Uh, the country entry requirements still seem to be a bit of a deterrent for many people. Uh, you can only fly in. You must live within two hours of the airport. Uh, you can't catch an Uber, taxi or public transport home. So it seems many are holding out for Queensland to achieve that 80% double-dose milestone, which is the trigger uh, for quarantine-free entry to Queensland for the vaccinated and, and when people will be allowed to drive into the state. Currently, we're sitting at just over 71% double-dose coverage. Uh, but the good news is the rates seem to be picking up. The government says since it announced vaccine mandates for a multitude of hospitality and, and entertainment venues last week, the rates have picked up, particularly in regional areas, uh, up 62% across the state. And if those rates are maintained, Michael, we could hit that 80% milestone sooner than the 17th of December. That would be good news. All right, Alex Lewis there in Brisbane, thank you for that. Tensions over Taiwan have loomed large during virtual talks between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. The US president expressed his concerns about moves to undermine peace, stability and independence. His Chinese counterpart didn't hold back, reportedly saying those play with fire will get burned. Trade and human rights abuses were also discussed. The United Kingdom is on heightened terror alert tonight. The threat level raised following a taxi bombing outside a hospital in Liverpool. Intelligence officials say another attack is highly likely. And we can unmask the bomber, a 32-year-old Syrian-born man unknown to authorities who'd recently converted from Islam to Christianity. 
Archaeologists believe they may have discovered the location of one of Egypt's sun temples built thousands of years ago. Only six were built and so far only two have ever been unearthed. Dr Karen Suwada is the director of the Australian Centre of Egyptology and joins us again here on The Latest. Thanks for joining me again. All this pleasure. is a really fascinating discovery. Just, just how significant is the discovery of a sun temple? Well, we don't have many temples from this very early period of Egyptian history. So to find a second temple underneath an existing temple represents a very important discovery. Very rare then. Am I right in saying this is only the second one as such? That's right. Well, there are six to seven temples are known from the ancient sources, but only two have actually been found. And here uh, I understand the uh, Polish and the Italian mission have discovered the mud brick foundations of a second building underneath the existing temple that was built by King Neuzera, dating to about 240, 40 BC. So it's a little, little under... Yeah. Four and a half thousand years ago. Extraordinary. So to find this second temple, an earlier temple underneath this later structure, represents the possibility that King Neuzerah actually built his temple over somebody else's, or this could in fact be some other structure altogether chance discovery or were they actually looking for this? Well look, this temple has been known for many decades. It was found about 100 years ago, it's been well documented but there's always more work that one can do at these archaeological sites that have been previously investigated. So looking at the pictures, a few new trenches were dug and really not very far from the surface these uh, these new mud brick foundations yeah. emerged which uh, certainly indicates a significant structure that was underneath this temple. And a sun temple in the significance of Egyptian history what, what is it? Well, it's very interesting because some temples were built over a very short period of time, a period of about 80 years, during what we know as the Egyptian Sixth Dynasty, so a line of kings that ruled from about uh, 2500 BC down to about 2400 BC, so again, four and a half thousand mm. years ago. And uh, about seven kings, we think, built these sun temples. And they were a particular structure that was built and dedicated to the god Ra, the sun god who was the preeminent god of Egypt at that time. And they were uh, uh, temples that may have actually had an obelisk, a, a squat obelisk in the centre of an enclosure. And we know that from this existing temple that uh, still remains belonging to King Nuzera. But uh, they appear to have died out after these seven or eight right. temples were built. Uh, and so we don't really know why, yeah. but uh, they represent a particular worship of the god Ra at this time and probably also a cult of the king himself that was linked to that, uh, to that god. Interesting. So there was news also on the lost Golden City in April. What can you tell us about that? Well, this is a very interesting discovery and, in fact, represents possibly one of the most important discoveries uh, in many decades. Uh, we don't have a lot of Egyptian settlements. They've tended to uh, be overlooked in favour of tombs and temples and the fabulous remains that uh, mm. everybody likes to visit in Egypt. And settlements tend to be made of mud brick. And so they don't survive to the same degree as the stone-built monuments. But this this settlement, this town, in fact, was uh, almost in plain sight. In fact, I'm sure I've actually walked over this site <laughs> before really? because yeah. it's in a very, very uh, exposed area. Uh, near the major monuments around Luxor on the west bank of the Nile where the tour buses go past it all the time. There's a major temple next to it and the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities was actually looking for a new mortuary temple of a king in this area and they found instead this massive settlement which is incredibly well preserved yeah. with mud brick walls standing several metres high, uh, rooms that still had objects in situ as if the inhabitants had just walked out, uh, food remains, a very unusual, uh, a very unusual wall that uh, is not that well attested.
existed in Egyptian archaeology that looks like a serpentine. If you think of a snake along the ground, this entire settlement was surrounded by this serpentine wall, which is, is mm. incredibly unusual. So it's like this time capsule of Egyptian right history, right there, <laughs> and in fact dates to the king, uh, King Amenhotep III, who was one of the great kings of, of Egypt, and in fact was Tutankhamun's grandfather. So, uh, and his name was found on artefacts in the settlement. So this is an incredible time capsule and was even described by a colleague as the Pompeii of Egypt. Goodness me. And you can't wait to get back there. You can travel can't. again. I know, that's right. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, Karen, great to have you in again. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. They've been described as Australia's most platonic couple. South Australia's giant pandas in residence, Wong Wong and Fu Ni, have the hopes of conservationists right around the world on their furry shoulders. Dr Phil Ainsley joins us now from Adelaide Zoo. Phil, really good to talk to you again. We've spoken a few times. Let me ask you, another season's gone by with no panda babies. What's going on? Unfortunately, Michael, uh, so giant pandas, they are one of the rarest animal species on the planet today. So they come with some complications and unfortunately their reproductive systems and their systems themselves are quite challenging. Um, with giant pandas, we have a really narrow window. So we have a once a year opportunity and it lasts for just 36 hours. Uh, so this year um, we saw Funi and Wong Wong come very close. This year we were focused on uh, natural mating and whilst we saw some attempted matings, unfortunately at the point where it was really critical, uh, they couldn't get uh, the things where they needed to get going in the right place. So unfortunately no successful mating. So it's incredibly difficult to breed them, isn't it? It is. So um, we know that in terms of giant pandas, they've got that one very limited window. Um, across the globe in terms of all of the different organisations that have been working in the global effort to conserve giant pandas. Uh, the early work really focused on the use of assisted reproductive technology, so using artificial insemination. That was the core part of that breeding process. Uh, and early on, um, when there was fewer than 1,200 pandas left in the wild, the focus was to establish a population of pandas uh, in different organisations throughout China and then through a range of different institutions globally. Uh, Adelaide Zoo is one of 26 zoos outside of China that right. is very fortunate to have giant pandas. What did the pandemic do to the... Hang on, we've got a sighting. Is that actually Wong Wong behind you? He's finally... <laughs> we've spoken to you so many times and he wouldn't even move. Turn around, Phil. He's right there now. We have Wong Wong. <laughs> and he's we, we done it again. Say, Michael, he's we, turned we've his, him. <laughs> he's turned his back on me again. He's got this his is... back to you. Oh. <laughs> this Look, has happened the past two times. We, we, we do say we're going to get that. <laughs> That's a good Bless view. Him. Yeah, well, he's there. <laughs> he finally came out. Um, look, whilst he's, whilst he's there, <laughs> can't believe he's done it again. Um, has the pandemic changed their behaviour, Phil? Look, um, well, he, he's definitely likes keeping his back to the situation. Um, for the pandas itself, it probably hasn't changed too much in their behaviour. But what it did do, it really uh, impacted the relationship and how we actually approached breeding. Um, mm. As you know, Michael, the relationship we have with China in terms of that breeding agreement, really important. So our specialists here with our keepers, our vet team, and also we work very closely with Reprimed. Yeah. Um, we work in consultation with the giant panda specialists in China. And 
Unfortunately, the pandemic meant that we couldn't have a visitor come down from China. No. Uh, so this year, we were really relying on technology, so using uh, Zoom meetings and a lot of uh, catch-ups that way. Yeah. Um, the decision this year was to just focus on natural mating. So we made the decision we wouldn't try artificial insemination and really just passed it over to the two pandas to do what yeah. pandas do best, and hopefully uh, that was the intent of the breeding uh, direction for this year. Well, he's gone again now. He's got no interest in this interview either. <laughs> he's, he's disappeared in the background. <laughs> Anyway, we're lucky we saw oh, he, him. He, look, he's, he's probably preparing for a big ending. Oh, OK. All right. Well, we'll, we'll wait and see. <laughs> any, any more plans for any other pandas in, in, in the pipeline? I know this is a real gift uh, to have these pandas in Australia and particularly in Adelaide, and you're part of that really exclusive program. A any other plans? Yeah, look, definitely uh, in terms of with the two pandas, uh, Giant pandas themselves, they're a national treasure in China, so they do remain uh, under the ownership of the Chinese mm. government. All of the institutions that have pandas have an agreement in place. Uh, we're now into our 12th year with our two giant pandas, uh, and in 2019 we had an extension of our agreement that we'll see these two pandas remain with us here at Adelaide Zoo through to the end of 2024. Mm. Um, so with the end of this breeding season, uh, we're now really gearing up uh, 12 months out, getting ready for next year. Uh, we know that Funi will probably go through a pseudo-pregnancy. So whilst there wasn't a mating, uh, all of her systems will be geared to go. So she will go through a pregnancy, uh, actually go through the process of giving birth, even though yeah. she obviously won't give birth to a cub. Uh, and that's part of that process. So for us, uh, really focus now on what 2022 looks like. Really hopeful that we'll see a successful breeding in that year. and. Fingers crossed there uh, may be panda cubs here at Adelaide Zoo in 2023. It'd be great. I'm excited. I don't know if our cameraman... It, Wong Wong's back and staring at us in the background there. Can our cameraman push in and have a look? There we go. Hopefully. <laughs> no, there we go. We've got an actual, uh, an actual active panda. Wong we Wong. do. Having a, having a nice chew <laughs> on the no, bamboo I think it's there. Only take, it's, <laughs> it's taken us three years, but we've got there, Michael. <laughs> no, every year we try and we feel we have success. You may not have bred pandas, but at least we've got an active Wong Wong. <laughs> we've got one on camera for you, I absolutely. Love it. All right, well, I consider that a success, even though we don't have panda babies, but you're going to do the program for a bit longer. Um, Dr. Phil Ainsley, it's terrific to talk to you and very thankful that Wong Wong is a bit more active this time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michael. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Google has announced it's investing in its first Australian research hub, paying $1 billion over five years. Tech commentator and writer Jeff Quattromani joins us from Sydney with more on this. Jeff, g'day to you. The investment, it's supposed to make Australia a top digital economy by the year 2030. Do you think it will? Look, it certainly could. And I think as Australians, we almost need to give ourselves a little bit more credit. We don't maybe know that in Australia, we have more programmers than we do secondary school teachers. We were the country that invented Wi-Fi. And I think, you know, being one of the big digital economies of the world absolutely could happen by 2030. That's very optimistic. I like it. But it was only last year that Google was threatening to uh, pull key services out of Australia. There was that political back and forth about what it was doing here. Uh, the PM described this today as a vote of confidence. Do, do you think it's corporate diplomacy or the real thing? Look, I think it's a little bit of both. I think Google was doing the right thing by announcing such a significant investment into the country. But at the same time, I think most Australians will really just care about the fact that there'll be more jobs available, more research opportunities in this country as well, and a larger investment in infrastructure, which we are absolutely looking forward to. Jeff, drill into that for me briefly. What does it mean in terms of actual product that, Je that Google might be producing out of here and the sort of staff they'd be employing to do it?
So if you think about from a research perspective, actually localizing Google's research into Australia means that we actually start to look into our own problems in our own backyard. Thinking about the Great Barrier Reef, for example, is a really good spot where Google will spend their time partnering with the CSIRO, working with Macquarie University and others to really come up with real solutions for our problems rather than focusing on problems outside of this country. So this really helps spotlight us with Google's mind. And uh, Google has a base here already. Does it mean a certain state or city gets all of that business or will it be spread around? Look, I think Sydney will see the, the brunt of it. I think we'll be fortunate in Sydney to get so many new jobs available. But I do expect this will also stretch into Melbourne and potentially Brisbane as well. All right. Good news and big announcement. Jeff Quattromani, thanks for that. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome back. Seven years after his disappearance, police have embarked on a new and targeted search of key areas in the New South Wales town of Kendall. Let's bring in our panellists, Dee Madigan and Carolyn Overington, for their take on this William Tyrrell development and a few other headlines. Carolyn, I'm going to start with you first, because you've been following this case for a few years. Are we close to finding William? I think everybody hopes so, and the cards will fall where they fall, and whoever is responsible should be brought to justice. I think everyone has been quite distressed this week by these developments because there was this idea that um, we might find remains and I think that that's the first time that we've heard that word used. Previously, police and I think a lot of family and friends have held out some hope that William might be found alive. I know it becomes more fanciful as the years go on and he would be nearly 10 now and he's been gone for seven years. But I think a lot of people did hope that. And then this time around, the police said, well, we are searching for remains, which means it's no longer an abduction. We're talking about a potential homicide. Mm. Dee, um, I guess only a short amount of time after, you know, the, the, the joy of finding little Cleo Smith in WA, um, it, it sort of it brought some hope or optimism about what may or may not have happened to William, but now a whole lot of stark reality this week and it's been uncomfortable. Um, how have you sort of digested this news of the William Tyrrell developments? Yeah, so what you, I guess we all want to hope is that the Cleo, what happened there, hasn't caused people to, you know, want to do something. Yeah. I mean, it just seems weird this many years afterwards, all of a sudden they have a theory that they never had before. So unless someone has given new information, it's really bizarre that it's come up now and you hope it's come up based on good evidence, not because someone wants to solve something and they're going about it, you know, mm. in, in a way that 
feels to me pretty weird. Although that can be a good thing, I think, that somebody comes along with fresh eyes. I mean, we've seen that in the past where people will go into the cold case room and be given a completely impossible task, be told to open the box and have a go. And, and you, you know what? Sometimes it works. You go back to an old witness and they say, look, actually this or that. So sometimes it does work. I think, I think that can be a good thing. But I think it's, it's, it's troubling for the public that we've heard a few times oh, they're about to make an arrest and then they don't. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's, 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 it's such a sharp turn in the way they're taking this now, aren't they, mm. with the focus on an unnamed suspect and uh, all sorts of things. Um, but, but it's this, this rapid development, I think, that's shocked a few people. Mm. And there have been so many different persons of interest and the coroner has been really clear, and she said a number of times, if you're a person of interest in this case, it doesn't mean you're a suspect because it just means that it's somebody that you have to rule out because we have to rule out all the various players who are in the street on the day and so we shouldn't feel straight away that the police have said, oh, someone's a person of interest, therefore they're a suspect. That, that's not how it works. I think what you want is just as long as the police aren't putting all their resources into the one person and I think that's what sometimes happens in these cases um, well people think well that's the person who did it or who most likely did it and then yes. ignore the rest which is I think Cleo the case there told us just how wrong that is. Yeah. yeah absolutely they kept a really open mind and they did a terrific job I mean that's it the WA investigation into Cleo Smith has now become the gold standard yeah. that's how you handle an abduction you shut it down the, the campsite straight away you ask everybody what they were doing you track down Collect everyone rubbish. who was there. You get every scrap yeah. of information and, and evidence don't you? Absolutely, yeah. that's now the gold standard. And police all over the world will be looking at WA and, and they should be puffed up with pride because they did a magnificent job. They found her alive after 18 days, which is almost unheard of yeah. in child abduction cases. All right, let's move on to this next subject now. Um, new pandemic powers for Victoria's Premier have passed the state's lower house, but the opposition has imposed 18 changes. And one of the changes is to limit the extension of a pandemic declaration to one month instead of making it indefinite. Dee, this has been really controversial uh, in Victoria. The law is expected to pass with the changes, but a lot of backlash by protesters. What's going on here? Yeah, so the, the, most of the um, changes to the um, law was brought in by the crossbenchers, and I think their changes were good. They brought in that it had to be um, a little bit more transparent, the process, um, and that the human rights, uh, the Victorian human rights regulations applied to every aspect of it. And those are important changes, I think. I feel it's funny that Brad Hazard's trying to bring in very similar laws here and the <laughs> Liberals aren't saying a word, but when they bring in, in, in Victoria, it's like, oh, this is outrageous. I think it's reasonable to, for us to know next time a pandemic happens that we actually need to know how it's all going to work and that's what these laws are essentially going to do. And I, I get why people are uncomfortable with the government's power over things but as we all know sometimes you have to put the common good first yeah. and that's what these laws I think try to do. Uh, Karen and I'll say this for protests in Victoria they're never subtle <gasps> ever. There's, some of them are quite some of the imagery is quite violent going on down there yeah um, they make their point in protests in Melbourne. Yeah and it's not attractive it's, it doesn't strike me as very Australian if that makes sense I know that they were walking along with um, gallows and nooses in the United States about a year ago and now that's been adopted here and it doesn't really feel like us no. Like, and, and I think the big puppet heads and things that came from America too are now have arrived here and people are being quite violent about that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't feel that protesting in and of itself is wrong. I think that people should be entitled to protest and these laws are really problematic, Dee. They really are. They actually, they actually enshrine the right to protest, which is good. I, I think the problem with these protests is, as you've said, they went too far. Like, some of the protesters went outside the crossbenchers' 
house. They made death threats against the... Yeah. And that, that's the line where it's actually not OK. You think yeah. the powers are that, too much? I do. Yeah. I really do. I think that it's, it's frightening, the idea that you can continue to call pandemic legislation into play, whether there's a pandemic or not, and you can do so indefinitely. And you're saying, oh, well, you, it's only for a month, but then you can renew it and you can keep renewing it forever. And really, basically, for any reason, it's quite scary. I, I, think, the, I think the changes brought in by the crossbench stop that happening because there's actually an oversight committee, whereas I, I want to see that in New South Wales because I think Brad Hazard's plan is till 2023, which seems like a long time as well. So, look, I think the changes made to the Victorian laws are good ones mm. and I think the laws are, are OK. All right, let's talk sport, which we rarely do on this panel. <laughs> so, <laughs> the T20 uh, cricket team has arrived home after their World Cup win against New Zealand with David Warner, acknowledged for his uh, quite incredible performance. The glowing reviews uh, represent quite a comeback after Australia's cricket brand was obviously tarnished by the sandpaper gate. Um, Dee, passage of time. Uh, we do love a winner, and David Warner's come home a hero. Yeah, look, part of me goes, oh, really? And then part of me goes, do you know what? We have to give people a chance to make good, you know. Otherwise, otherwise, we're never going to get sportsmen saying, sorry, I did the wrong thing, because what would almost be the point of it, you know? So, ugh, so. also, though, I do like the fact that he was written off. Like, he, I don't think he even... I think he got dropped from his IPL team. Like, he was considered too old. So there's, a, there's the ageist... The older person in me go, good on him for doing it, and part of me goes, yeah, but he cheated. So, And also, then I remember it's cricket, and I'm like, eh, whatever. Oh. <laughs> Um, Carolyn, um, I mean, forgiveness is something that's lost in this outrage era. Um, have you forgiven and forgotten? About Sandpapergate? Yeah. I mean, I think it took Australia a long time to recover from that scandal. I think Australians were genuinely horrified by the idea that we were doing such a thing and that we needed to have a good hard look at the team and people have taken time out from the team and reflected and done all of those things. I was thrilled to see uh, when David, David Warner was written off, as you say, and then I was thrilled to see that his wife was really active on social media yesterday. She was really giving it to the critics, you know. She was sort of saying, you said he was down and out and look at him go, he's fantastic. And I always like that. I always like to see people's families, like, yeah. feeling really oh, look, joyous I'll, I'll about them, it. I'll give Candace and him this. They are fighters and battlers. They, they really are. You know, a lot of people would have run away and hid for a while. That is but, true. Uh, they've but, yeah. got that Aussie battler mentality and, and, it's and clear they're putting that, the runs on. Yeah, and it's Literally. clear that he adores his wife. She adores him. He's got good support. The yeah. girls, I think he clearly adores, the little girls that they've got together. But I thought it was great for her to be able to... Because, you know, sometimes the media is all writing, oh, Dave Warner's career's over, it's finished, you know, he's a dead man, that sort of thing. And then she can get in there and yeah, say, yeah. no way! <laughs> Sets off a good ashes too. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> all right, there's, gee, we covered a few things tonight. There's a lot of variety there, um... Thanks for coming in again, Pleasure. both of you. Well, thanks to your company tonight from the team here at 7 News. That is the latest. Thanks to your company. I'm Michael Usher. Have a good night. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.